Hi, good evening and welcome. My name is Eric Banks. I'm the director of the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU. And it is my pleasure to welcome you here this evening to our conversation, which is entitled Legacies, Militancy, and Sisterhood. Um, we are the co-sponsoring institute involved in, in tonight's event. And I wanted to take the opportunity just very quickly to, to uh, thank everyone at Penn World Voices for their help. In particular, uh, Kim Chan and Boo Frable, who have been just outstanding in help us, helping us to organize this event tonight. And we're really happy to have you all join us. Um, I was intrigued a while back to learn uh, that two of our fellows at the Institute, the Institute is a loose uh, society of fellows comprising um, academics and writers of various stripes, from journalists of ideas to biographers to novelists. Um, and I was intrigued to learn that two of our fellows, um, Honor Moore and Alex K. Schulman, uh, were at work on a uh, fascinating multi-volume uh, project for the Library of America, anthologizing the women's movement in the 1960s and 1970s. This year's Pen World Voices Festival um, offered what seemed an apt occasion to ask them, along with our fellow Margot Jefferson, like them, a veteran of the movement, uh, to engage publicly with the material they were working on and to offer reflections uh, concerning the legacy of second wave feminism for our present political and cultural life. It's also a chance, it seemed, for a uh, conversation involving uh, feminists of a different generation, in this case, Anna Holmes and um, Erin Cremon, to consider how all of us might think about the relationship between this earlier moment and our various and numerous struggles today. And I'm really grateful to everyone who's joined us in the audience and on stage tonight, and, and want to thank you. I just want to say, uh, before we begin, that if this uh, panel were a baseball team, it would be uh, this year's New York Mets. We've had a lot of injuries and a great number of illnesses to pop up unexpectedly. And our starting lineup has changed uh, a little bit since we, from what you probably read online. Uh, first, um, Alex Kate Schulman, unfortunately, uh, had an accident a couple of weeks ago. Um, and she's recuperating and was, was really hopeful she could make it tonight. But unfortunately, she was physically not able to, uh, to join us. And um, we're sorry not to have her uh, on stage with us tonight. And earlier today, we unfortunately lost Michelle Goldberg to a very bad stomach virus. So um, we thank you for uh, bearing with us. And I really want to thank um, Irin for joining us at such a last-minute invitation to, to, to help us uh, put together what's going to be a very spectacular and interesting conversation. Uh, so I'll very quickly introduce our panelists and then let them take it away. I want to first introduce Margot Jefferson. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic and the author of Negro Land, which won the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She's been a staff writer for the New York Times and Newsweek and has published in New York Magazine, The Nation, Vogue, The Believer, Guernica, Book Forum, and Grand Street. Uh, she teaches in the writing program at Columbia University. Honor Moore, who's next to her, to her left, um, her most recent book is The Bishop's Daughter, a memoir, um, and her most recent collection of poems is entitled, or titled, uh, Red Shoes. She's completing new works of both memoir and poetry, and as I mentioned with uh, Alex Kate Schulman, she's co-editing Writing the Women's Movement for the Library of America, which will be published in 2020, which marks the centenary of American women's suffrage. Uh, she lives and writes in New York, where she teaches and coordinates nonfiction at the New School Graduate Writing Program. Erin Carmon, on the end, um, is a co-author of the New York Times bestseller, uh, Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she is a contributing writer for the Washington Post Outlook section. And our moderator this evening, moderator uh, participant, is Anna Holmes. Um, Anna has written and edited for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, InStyle, and The New Yorker Online. She is the founder of the popular website Jezebel.com, 
and works as a columnist for the New York Times Book Review and is an editor of Digital Voices at Fusion. Uh, following our conversation, we'll open up to your questions and uh, observations, and uh, thank you again for coming. Hi. I need to change the, my bio on my on the, my website <laughs> because <laughs> because it's it said I it said that I have a job that I haven't had for about a year now and I feel bad about it and I and I, so I, d I worked at Fusion and now I work at a company called First Look Media um, where I'm uh, a digital exec for building vice out. president a, w a senior vice Lean president in. senior, senior vice, vice president, president. <laughs> senior <laughs> vice president <laughs> where we're building where we're building where we're building a we're, we're building something that will launch in about a month and a half. But I just I feel bad every time I hear my own bio, yeah, that I didn't update my site. So, hi. <laughs> um, hi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again, Arin, for um, joining us at, a very at the very last minute. <laughs> um, and we're glad to have you here. Um, so the title of this discussion, uh, I don't want to call it a talk because it makes it feel too rigid, is Legacies, Militancy, and Sisterhood. And when I first saw the the title of the of the discussion, I, I seized up a little bit only because I realized I didn't know what how I felt about either of those two words, milita militancy and sisterhood, um, especially with regards to feminism. Mm -hmm. And so I, I figured that would be an interesting place to start um, the discussion and to ask each one of you, well, what the definition, what your definition of sisterhood is, either broadly or with regards to the women's movement. Well. I, in thinking about the title, wanted to get across some of the uh, chief elements of second wave feminism. And one was the kind of uh, transformation of women as cat fighting enemies of each other into allies, uh, which happened through uh, demonstrations, consciousness raising, a number of the sort of modalities of second wave feminism. And um, it continues to mean to me a kind of, a, a kind of um, I hate the word special, it sounds reductive. And sacred sounds wrong too, but you know, an important kind of alliance between women to uh, act in their own interests in concert with each other. and. I felt it very strongly at the Women's March because I don't like crowds and I was very reluctant to go and I, and I hate those massive demonstrations where everybody jostles you, but it, w but it wasn't like that. Were and you in D.C. or you in New York? I was in D.C. and uh, they were, you know, you couldn't move and I had an 87-year-old friend I was kind of with and supporting, but it was so comfortable and calm and I, and I, I don't want the violins to play, but I felt a kind of sisterhood mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by that. Margo, what about you? Um, I'm very happy with acting in consort. Um, I'm third, and not as consort, um, <laughs> <laughs> to, um, to advance um, our own interests. I would also say um, acting and thinking consciously ways in which women have been maybe deemed to be mistrust or discriminated against, macro to micro aggressions, we could say. Um, and also, you know, our the w parts of our history that are empowering, that are 
culturally, politically um, interesting. Um, I don't consider, um, it, you know, it doesn't extend to all women. I really mm -hmm. would say it's women who are thinking and, and, and working. I won't say fighting militantly, but working in various ways. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, for um, every form of equality. Um, and uh, one of the first, one of the second wave um, feminists once said to me, um, very interesting and powerful woman named <laughs> T. Grace Atkinson, um, she was talking about some of the divisions in fights that were going on on the women's movement. She said, sisterhood should at least meet the minimum requirement for friendship. <laughs> 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 okay, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I, I tend to think of sisterhood as a kind of aspirational ideal more so than something that is evinced in our daily lives. Um, before the election, I spent some time actually looking for these, now I realize, mythical women who were so outraged by Donald Trump that despite being, let's say, white married women who would be likely uh, to vote for Republicans anyway, that they would abandon him. And we know that that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And now I understand that it wasn't because I was a bad reporter. So that is some small comfort. Because I was calling these women's clubs in Ohio, trying to get together a group of friends for a TV segment where they would talk about, you know, their internal uh, debates about whether to abandon the Republican Party, and I just couldn't find anyone. Mm. Um, and so now I know that that didn't exist. So do I feel s I did eventually find a group that uh, they weren't abandoning, but they had different political views. So we just had them talk to each other because they already knew each other. And I thought a lot in those conversations about sisterhood, like what do I have in common with them? What interests are they moving forward? You know, when there's a woman sitting there with a pink ribbon in her hair talking about how Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States, mm -hmm. and yet saying to me, you know, men don't want women to get ahead, mm. and voting for Trump. And so I think sisterhood is one of the most difficult challenges that feminism has set up for itself, because for some of these women, the patriarchy is working just fine. I mean, or so they think, right? Until they run afoul of it in one way or another, or they've made their peace with it. And so I, I think it's an ideal that we have to hold up as feminists to say that we can transcend the fact that some people benefit from the status quo and are not that interested, and that includes women, in upending it, but also that we have to say that structurally, as a category, all women will benefit, or mo the most women, and also society will benefit at large, that, that if we are militant, and I know we've all kind of been passing the buck on militant, but, <laughs> but, sister, but that, that sisterhood is just an ideal that we can say that uh, the division of power involves disruptions, right? That these, mm -hmm. that these kinds of conversations are profoundly difficult for people to have because they're so intimate in people's lives mm -hmm. and because there are so many other things like class and race and religion and politics that divide us. But that as a feminist, I at least have to believe that we can make connections based on our shared gendered experiences in the world and that we can try to look other women in the face and make our best argument about why the world would be better if mm -hmm. feminists had our way. Um, we can take certain actions, and that's really, mi you know, mi militant now has this whole cluster of almost caricatures, you know, that started, I think, in, in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, very associated with violence. Um, militant is in strong words in your beliefs and in your actions. Um, the march, while peaceful, the Washington March and all its 
associated marches was um, it weren't militant. Yes. I, I wanted to just bring up one thing from second wave feminism, which is there was this thing, I, I can't remember whether it was the New York radical women or the feminists who had the, or Red Stockers who had the pro-woman line. And I, and the pro-woman line has been popularized as, you know, I'm sisters with all women. And I, so I called up Alex this morning and I said, Alex, I just need some clarity on the pro-woman line. What about Sarah Palin? <laughs> and um, and she said, um, she said, well, in that idea was the idea of thinking about the most oppressed woman. Um, you know, it's it's like it's like the the and that um, that that we're not talking about middle class whoever being able to be sisterly with this one or that one, but we're talking about the woman who has the least you know, and, and speaking in her interests uh, so that, you know, because there have been these sort of iconic um, reactionary women like Sarah Palin, like, you know, Ivanka Trump even, um, saying, you know, when, you know, when you go into the hospital to have your baby, be sure your team is lined up. Your team? <laughs> you know, anyway, uh, so I just wanted to add that. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I feel like, well, for me, I, I never really had a problem with the idea of sisterhood until I got older and realized, well, that, that my that I my ideas about it were being very they were being extremely tested, and I think that that mm -hmm. came to a fore in two thousand eight with with mm -hmm. the emergence of Sarah Palin, and mm -hmm. and and I think that I f I feel very conflicted about it about about mm -hmm. the idea now with regards to. Um, I guess women like herself, it's, and, and it's interesting you mentioned Ivanka Trunk, Trump because I think both women, Ivanka more than Sarah Palin, have embraced um, and used as marketing, I think very cynically, interest in women's empowerment a as a way to, to avoid certain types of criticism, as a way to market themselves, right. um, and I don't really feel sisterhood with them, even though what might be coming out of their mouths might it sometimes you know, sound even like Laura it. Bush in her very <coughs> quiet way played that game mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So and yeah. Oh, I was going to ask about waves. So I think I but let me just yeah. say one mm -hmm. other thing about sisterhood. One of the um, first one of the early critiques of a kind of sentimental notion of sisterhood was coming from um, black and latina um, and asian feminists who mm -hmm. in fact were pushing for you know, a much a more rigorous and specific definition. Who exactly are our sisters, sisters. on what grounds? Yes. You know, and how far can we go? What are interests? Um, you know, sisters can in fact betray each other right. or have nothing in common. So that was for one of the, the first, I think, examinations of that word really began. Yes, and it's, um, it's it remains important. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the idea of an aspirational, yeah. it has an aspirational Yeah, because idea. then it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're failing in the moment <laughs> <laughs> at something. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Ivanka Trump can't be the test of whether feminism is failing, right? Right. right. Like it's also letting her take up more space than she deserves. Yeah. It should be about the women who have the least. I mean, we're not going to convince every woman, again, right. because the Ivanka Trumps and the Kellyanne Conways of the world benefit from being the one person in the room who's there to kind of furnish 
the stink of what, uh, you know, or the, the bleakness of that vision and what it means for the least of us. Right. And so I almost feel like if we make Ivanka Trump and Sarah Palin the benchmark of whether we feel sisterhood, they're already taking up more space than we need because there are millions of other women who deserve that oxygen. I want to talk about waves. I yes. I get to my, yeah. my next kind of topic. So first of all, uh, when I think about waves, I, I, I don't like using the phrase second wave or third wave. I, I don't know why I have a kind of an allergy to that. Um, maybe because I don't want to identify myself as being part of a wave, but that maybe because the idea of a wave uh, insinuates um, that there's like a, 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 an ebb and flow, and so I and, and I don't quite know where the ebbs. The well, mm -hmm. I kind of know where the, where the ebbs and flows were <laughs> with regards to with the women's movement, but I, but I, 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 I guess I, what I'd ask is, do you consider yourself? Do you identify as a as a second waver? Like I, I guess uh, I'm in the third, but uh, I. I, the wave thing is like an external uh, defining, uh, I mean, it never came up, you know. I mean, what came up was that there had been the suffrage movement, and then, you know, it's very interesting, you know, the we of the late 1960s, 70s, we had to relearn the history of feminism. Uh, it really had disappeared. And part of the whole uh, effort of um, the 60s generation, 60s, 70s generation of feminists was to reclaim that history. And I think that uh, uh, the, the third wave identified themselves in reaction to the second wave because many of them, of the leaders, were actually daughters of second wave feminists. Um, Alex and I have had a lot of discussions about, uh, I mean, we, we feel that our volume will probably begin in 63-ish with the feminine mystique, but where does it end, you know? It, uh, and what is a, a second wave idea, what is a third wave idea? Uh, we haven't gotten to where we know where it ends, but what I will say is that you know, we thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president, and that would be some kind of apotheosis of the second wave. But we both felt so strongly that the Women's March on January 21st was a new wave of something. It was a, um, a, uh, an, a, a phenomenon which had a leadership which was entirely independent of second or third wave feminism. I think they recruited people who had uh, experience earlier, but it was spontaneous. And that, to me, is completely thrilling. I mean, I, I find because it's how, um, it's how what is called second wave feminism happened, it, it happened. I mean, it didn't just happen in one place. It happened spontaneously all over the country, as did women's suffrage and as uh, does this. So I think we're actually in a very interesting mm -hmm. moment as far as waves are concerned, and I think I agree with you that, that it, to call myself a second waver is sort of reductive or to yeah. think of you as a third yeah. waver yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, were you, so you weren't disappointed that there, there weren't second waivers uh, who were uh, invited into the, at least very publicly, the process of the Women's March? Um, no, I mean, it, it was, you know, I mean, Gloria Steinem spoke in Washington. I don't know who, you know, mm -hmm. various second wave mm -hmm. people spoke elsewhere, but 
and I think many second wave, I think all the second wave people who are alive and can walk <laughs> went to the marches. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, I thought it was great. Yeah. I just, there, 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 is, a, there is a certain uh, hostility that I do pick up on, mostly online, which mm -hmm. can be a very hostile place. Of third waivers <laughs> towards second waivers, or even, I don't know, like, Erin, are you a third waiver? I don't think that you are. <laughs> I think that you're, you're younger than um, me. I, d I think of third waivers as more of a Gen X thing, and I'm yeah. a millennial, if that's yeah. how we're going to do it. Yeah. Or sorry, I'm an early millennial. I don't know. I was born in 1983. Yeah. I don't right. But, the, the, the but I read, but you know, when I was in high school, I read books by third waivers. Mm -hmm. So that oh helped really? shape my feminism. Yeah, that was like, oh, I need to learn about what's happening now in feminism. But it wasn't part of it. I was in high school. I, I think it's an evolving uh, consciousness feminism. I mean, it's an evolving revelation of what a woman can be. I mean, I think that you know, to imagine, and I'm telling you, to imagine in 1968 when, you know, Eugene McCarthy was up there in New Hampshire, that there would be a woman my age, you know, a year, I guess she's a year younger than me, running for president of the Democratic Party. I mean, it's just like, forget it, you know. You well, part of what goes on, and there have been strains, you yeah. know, not only on the internet, you know, editorials and, you know, mm -hmm. between the generations. Part of what goes on is these very differing expectations. Yes. You know, um, you didn't, neither of you would have had that, oh, my God, this woman could possibly be president. Um, and as another generation of blacks were not shocked the way my generation and previous ones were at the sheer fact of Obama mm -hmm. being in women. And you know, so there were just those, and then there's popular culture and how it mutates and reshapes, um, you know, um, mm -hmm. feminism um, as whatever, as a fashion. So there are strains, wave, I don't, I just don't much think about it. They're both kind of dull terms yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I, I think the one way in which it's helpful is not to think about each wave as this means you believe this, you know, this means this happened to you or, you, you know, these are your ideologies, but rather the way that we're shaped by sort of common historical experiences. Mm -hmm. So what if, you know, for when you finish your uh, anthology, is it the death of the ERA? Is it Phyllis right. Schlafly? Is it right. Reagan getting elected? Right. You know, because I wrote a book about a woman who was born in 1933 and but did most of her work in feminism between 1969 and 1989. Right. I'm sorry, 1979. So it was really about a period of time where those were the cases that Justice Ginsburg was bringing before the Supreme Court. Uh, she was part of movements. She was working with Gloria Steinem and Fannie Lou Hamer and, and Polly Murray, but Polly Murray was born in 1910, I think. And she was so damned ahead of the curve. Yeah. It's staggering. Right, right. And yeah. so it took decades for the work that she was doing to, to actually be, be brought before. For, for those who don't know, uh, definitely go home and Google Polly Murray or Google on your phone after the panel. Um, you know, somebody who shaped the ideas of the second wave and served on the Commission of Status of Women in President Kennedy um, came Help. up with the theories that Justice Ginsburg successfully convinced the Supreme Court uh, of women's equality. So there was a lot of really important work happening in the 70s. An African-American woman. Yeah. An African-American yeah. woman yeah. Helped and found queer. Now, and it now turns out was very quietly on the, you know, forefront of LGBTQ. Right, uh, May maybe by today's standards have considered herself trans. Um, now you were earlier today 
And I got to visit her house this morning in North Carolina. Uh. It's going to be the Polly Murray Center for Social Justice. Oh. Um, and it's just under, still under construction. Um, but, but I bring her up because I think about this generational model where you have Ginsburg, who was a college professor and a lawyer in the 60s and 70s, and not a feminist when she was in college mm -hmm. because she was the 50s, and only had this click moment because her students were baby boomers who went to Mississippi and came back and became militant on women's issues. And then ended up relying on the theories of a woman who was born too early to really benefit from those changes. And so I feel like, and then here we are, you know, my, my co-author uh, was in law school when she started the Notorious RBG. She's in her, God, I don't know, I think she's not yet 30. And so here we are writing this book about a second wave woman and, and talking about how people our age are so inspired by her example. So I think it can be unnecessarily confining because it's sort of these interconnected uh, people learning from each other. And, and when we keep having to rediscover it, it's usually because there's been some kind of horrible backlash right. and people yes. have been suppressed. So Anna, you founded Jezebel and you hired me at Jezebel. I was gonna say, you worked there. <laughs> yeah, but when I graduated from college, Jezebel did not exist and I did not think you could have a job as a feminist journalist. And the only reason I did is because of you. And so I feel like people having to kind of recreate things because for the longest time, nobody thought that the anybody would read a feminist website. Well, now look. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I, this is sort of what Alex and I are discovering. We're, I mean, I did this book for Library of America called uh, Poems from the Women's Movement. And I ended it kind of instinctively in 1982. Uh, it just was, it seemed, I didn't, and then later I found out that that was the year that the uh, ERA went down. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, and that, but that doesn't really hold up if we're really dealing with these, uh, writing the women's movement, uh, it's what you're talking about, these ideas. It doesn't really hold up to end in 1982 exactly. I mean, we're just sort of going from the beginning and seeing, uh, you know, we have 800 pages. Uh, Where does the book end or wh when does the book end? Well, we don't know yet. Okay. Um, you know, because we're, we're making the book and really it depends. It's, it's, like, it's like any act of the imagination, even though it's a work of scholarship and a work of uh, editorship, it's a feeling thing, and it's also like, well, how if we get to 1978 and we have 700 pages, then how much further can we go kind yeah, of thing, yeah. you know? Uh, so we're just trusting that the material will tell us right. uh, where to stop. Uh, and maybe they'll be forced to do two volumes. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Anna, when did you found Jezebel? Ten years ago, 2007. Did you have a mission, quote unquote, statement? You know, like a, I'm thinking of Ms. You know, and oh. it, its first um, issue, it had its kind of declarations. Of I bet you did. We, I mean, yes and no. I mean, there there were a couple of them. One of them, one of the women I hired underneath me is. I don't think she was a deputy, but one of the first writers I hired kind of, she was better at, <laughs> she was better at manifestos than I was, so she put together one that I basically agreed with, but looking back on it, it wasn't, it wasn't that sophisticated sounding. It was kind of all over the place, but it w that's, well that's the mood that we were in. That's often the case yeah. with a manifesto. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I think if someone had asked me, what are you, what are you doing? What do you want to do? I would have said, um, uh, that I was tired of 
contemporary, then contemporary women's media, and I and I wanted to politicize young women somewhat sneakily, or s maybe not sub subversive is too big of a word, but, but but to use a lot of the things they were being fed all the time, pop culture and fashion, and have them not just think about those things differently, but politicize them through their interests in those things, mm. but also just talk about politics. And it, 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 could, it could be, you know, but I, 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 didn't have, I didn't have a tagline. I didn't have like a good, you know, a but good tagline. it is a feminist document. It is. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. And then everyone copied it. I mean, there had been feminist websites that weren't commercial, and then there had been a uh, writers who were feminist in mainstream publications. But there had never been a site where everyone who worked there was doing that work, whether it was, you know, making fun of women's magazines, and there hadn't been any kind of like mainstream voice, or you know, writing about how celebrity magazines had to stop talking about women's uteruses, you know, but also covering the 2008 election. Well, I, and I'm blushing, so I'm going to go <laughs> on to the next. I'm going to go on to the next <laughs> thing. Um, you know, that media is is also interesting in that way because in the beginning, in the 60s and 70s. Um, I'm thinking of magazines, newspapers, et cetera. Mainstream, we had to depend on the kindness of, oh, let's have an editorial on feminism right. or, you know, or on divorce. Um, you know, you, there was no one, there was Ms., but you know, Ms. was also in its own way being sneaky yeah. <laughs> you know, and glossy and, um, and pleasing. Everybody couldn't write for Ms. You know? So it's a good thing that those of us who were feminists and writing in mainstream publications were finding ways to make our feminism part of, you know, more general reportage or, you know, reviews, um, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. But, you know, it was, it, 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 it was kind of lean out there. We were special interests. Special I mean, I was and we were condescended I to. In I that was way. A, I was a kid in the seventies, but but I you know so I have my memory. Let's let's take it with a grain of salt. But <laughs> my memory of the seventies and then to a certain point, certain point, but the eighties and and media, women's media, which you know was informed by what my mother read, suggested that there was a very vibrant conversation um, going on about women's issues not just in places like Ms., but in Glamour magazine, which was very different back then. And I think Later. that part of I what happened is that everything- I think by the late 70s yeah. to 80s, yes. Yes, in but not- In the early 70s, really no, not. No, but we, we yeah. uh, not we, but th 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 I'm sure Alex was there, occupied the Ladies Home Journal, mm -hmm. which had a, m <laughs> I mean, right. occupied it, yeah. which had a male editor and forced them to do a feminist uh -huh. issue. So that that feels kind of like a, a, That's a golden age, although I wouldn't see, see it as such. It was that later on, as I got older and I looked at, at, at the media landscape, that I wondered where all that had gone. Mm. Oh. Um, and you worked in it. Huh? And you worked in it at the Glamours of yeah, the Yeah, and, I, and I, I also worked in it, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Honor, at one point we were having an email exchange about things we wanted to talk about here this evening, and you made a great point. You said um, that the second wave had consciousness raising um, and that uh, young feminists or even I guess older ones as well have the internet. Um, so y your question was, does the internet, has the internet or can the internet um, successfully replace the one-on-one -on -one relationships that were made in one-on-one -on -one in consciousness raising groups? Um, uh, and you know, my answer would be no, but that's just my, my, my <laughs> My, my suspicion, 
but I want to know what you think because I, I'm also curious how much you are online and how much you're you're in. I'm not online very much because I really don't like conflict. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I like conversation, but I don't like those horrible insults that people write online. Mm -hmm. It just upsets me, so I just don't do it. But uh, um, Alex and I had talked about this. I mean, consciousness raising was used as an organizing tool you know, uh, getting people out to demonstrate. Well, that the internet does maybe better. A consciousness raising was used to, f used to forge solidarity. Maybe, probably the internet does not do that better. Consciousness raising was used to develop ideas because what it was was you'd, s you'd, you'd come together, maybe 12 women, and you'd have a topic each week like my relationship with my mother. So it would come up and it, it wouldn't just be sort of talking about your mother. What would develop would be that the, m that the mother had fewer, you hated her for not being more forceful, but as it turned out, you learned by going around the room that she had fewer options. Mm -hmm. And so that would develop political ideas and political analyses. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was real conversation. It was not easy, you know, always. But I'm not sure that the internet actually can, I don't know. I mean, for, for me it wouldn't replace it, but yeah. maybe it yeah. does for younger women. And then there's this thing called the huddles that came out of the march. Mm -hmm. I don't know about them. We all looked at Iran. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I honor have you exactly heard of the same feeling about the marches that yeah. you did. I really don't like crowds, but I went to the New York one, and I had been so skeptical because in the beginning the communication from them was so unimpressive. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I was wrong. It was amazing, yeah. and it made it made me optimistic about that connection from the the internet to the uh, to real life because. I do think, I mean, I, sometimes I think about the people who used to write to us at Jezebel, and some of the people who write to me now or tweet at me, um, like yesterday I got a very long email from a man in Tennessee who's a retired Marine, and he writes to a lot of feminist writers, I learned, and some mm -hmm. of them write back, and he was like, I was so happy when Katha Pollitt set me straight about abortion. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, wow, these women are so much more patient than I am. <laughs> like I was like, that's a nice email. Um, but but the um, but the idea that that uh, people can find out things about feminism, in the beginning I felt very optimistic about that um, because people would know that they weren't alone, and that's why we've yes. had a, yes, a popularization. Right. So it wouldn't just be if you happen to be in the right neighborhood in Manhattan in right. 1969, right? Right, which which was amazing, an amazing place to be, but a very specific movement, yes. and very specific yes. access. So that made me optimistic. But now I also think, you know, to your point about conflict that it also tends, internet-only interactions tend to bring out um, people almost get pushed into corners where they are much less nuanced than they may actually be in the world. Right. And they're much more reactive and emotional and they form factions and cliques based on very little. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't think, it, I usually feel depressed after a while, unless I'm reading an actual article that someone has had to reason through. But if I'm just reading Twitter or Facebook, you start to feel like, well, this feminism thing was a good idea, you know, right. <laughs> but, but it'll never work. In, like, uh, give me feminism without feminists. 
Right. Um, but uh, but then it's I go somewhere. Yeah. I go to a college campus. I went to yeah. the Women's March. Yeah. Uh, I go you know I go to cover an event, and there's such incredible vibrant energy. And some of these people, most of these people's gateway has been the internet, but yeah. they didn't stop there. Right. Well, what about the idea that this, so much of the political organizing going on right now is is being helmed and, and fueled by women? I mean, I I, I, yes. I I don't I haven't gone to any um, organizing groups I in New York, but I hear a lot of things anecdotally, both from the city and elsewhere. And, and, and I don't know if one would describe those as consciousness consciousness raising groups, but they certainly it certainly seems that a, a large number of women have been politicized by what happened this past election yeah. and, and, and are making those connections with one another one-on-one -on -one and also using the skills that they um, have developed throughout their lives or perhaps through their various vocations to, to, to affect change and scare, scare a, a number of congressmen. <laughs> well, I, I really like this idea of gateway, of the internet as a gateway. I mean, that's, very, that's a very useful uh, way of thinking about it, I think, for me. Margo, what, what do you think? Do you spend a lot of time on the internet? Uh, no, I spend a little time on, <laughs> the, on the internet. Um, I have friends who are more combative, you know, who will get into it. Um, but no, I, I tend to like a little feel that I can be in control of a little more subtlety, a little more yeah. tonal variety um, than you necessarily get. Um, the internet is great for being a declarative. But you are absolutely right. I th anecdotally, so I hear the number of women of s various generations using this range of organizing skills um, yes. in uh, politics now is terrific. What is brewing um, apparently is a big, it, no, it's, it's ongoing. This has always been a struggle. Um, in the women's movement and in the women's movements as it's seen, uh, the, how the women's movement is seen by other liberals to leftists. That question of um, does feminism, do the interests of women come first, or if you consider yourself a progressive feminist supporting of you know, anti-racist, um, anti-classist policies, you know, when, do you, when do you decide to let some other cause take precedence um, over feminism. This is an argument that's been fueled again. Um, you've, you've all seen it. Katha Pollock's had written columns about it. it mm -hmm. That one could get very ugly, and it's, it's, it's it never solved. It, it, it's never solved, but it, you know, if you go back to the very beginnings of, I mean, Alex is, we meet every Friday, every Friday morning, and she'll say to me, well, you know, I mean, what we wanted to do was get the whole, you know, crash the whole thing and start over. We were revolutionaries. So for radical feminists sort of they who started, the, it was all one thing, you know. I mean, there was an anti-racist analysis. There was a, yes. yes. So it's an I practically yeah. right. But so it's, it's, so it's I'm an idealist. It's disheartening to see it springing up in almost exactly the same language right. it always does. Yeah. Well, so, th so that kind of brings me to a question I had, which was, and this is mainly directed at you, Margo, and you, Honor, as to whether you had any regrets um, about the ways in which you've talked or thought about feminism in the past, like were there blind, th 
I guess the question is, with, with the development of maturity and getting older and, and having new waves, new waves come in, um, have you been made aware of blind spots that you may have had when you were younger as a feminist? And if so, what are they? What were they? Hmm. Well, I went through, but I got through it fast, I'm happy to say. I went through a period of what I would call um, female nationalism, you know, which mm -hmm. is today we call a kind of essentialism. Um, and it, it, it was very comforting. Um, fortunately, I had allies who argued me out of that one. <laughs> who, who what, I'm sorry? Who argued me out of okay. that and, and talked and, you know, we read, we argued, we, but um, yeah, that was a, that was a problem. Um, I think for my regrets might be more. Can you be more specific though by what you mean by, what? Uh, uh, by, by female, what the blind Female nationalism yeah. uh -huh. is what we would now call essentialism, okay. that women in some way, and it actually has its roots, well its roots go back very far, but a lot of 19th century feminists um, believed that in some way women were innately Superior, whether you wanted to call it more nurturing, um, you know, more mm. peaceful, more peaceful, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I won't say gentle; that wasn't what I was interested in. Um, <laughs> but it's sort of like if there, if women were in charge, we would have no wars, right? right. And that kind of yes. it hadn't really been tested yet. Exactly, yeah, mm. exactly. And I, I was able I to get through that, that one fast. Um, but it had a strong, it's had a Me strong hold on. And then, you know, there'd be this kind of bogus anthropology and. You know, it was all, yeah, yeah. And, and then I realized it was linking. There was no way you could separate it from a kind of um, racial, which would then be racist essentialism. So yeah. there were good ways to argue myself out of it. My regrets would mostly be, again, I would say um, tonal, a kind of, um, if you thought of yourself in any way in the 60s and 70s as radical, um, you could really be very contemptuous in your mm. and high-handed in your manner and in your analysis even. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I know that I've gotten um, without, you know, get thinking, oh, well, hey, I'm satisfied with the middle road now. I've gotten, you know, more, more, more subtle, hopefully. And a little more, more less, less arrogant. Yeah. I won't say humble, but less arrogant. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think part of it has to do with age. Uh, with yeah. with living longer. Yes, sure. Um, I oddly, I think I've become. I would have some of the same kinds of regrets. Um, the 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 you know the good good girls, bad girls. Good mm. girls are good. Bad boys are bad. Which never really quite worked for me. Yeah, I know. I'm but oh. I learned. A, I learned a lot from that. But mm. um, I think oddly enough while becoming more nuanced, I've also become more radical. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, have, how, really what are the ways more radical yeah. because I see things and you just think, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, yeah, here it is. Yeah. Here it and is. It's just, uh, saw this before. Saw it before <laughs> and really, you know, for me, I guess the most recent ones, I see all my friends in their 60s and 70s, incredibly accomplished women. And then one day I think, uh, and I see how hard everybody works, and one day I see, you know, the, the male equivalents of them getting many more rewards, much more recognition, and I think, 
I used to think that if I just worked hard, I mean, it's like all of us, if I just worked hard enough, uh, I could, you know, be, get where I want to get, they say. And then I realized, no, I'll just get to be the, one of the accomplished women, but that doesn't mean I'm getting where they get, you know. Uh, and and that's and I guess uh, I mean I'm fine and grateful and all that, but I but I'm pretty uh, radical in terms of what I see. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I think when I turned forty, I realized that in a lot of my workplaces. Uh, the women had done all the work and the men had gotten all the credit. I mean, and, and maybe I, yes. but, but I, was, I was seeing it all the time. Um, yeah. And I don't know that I became radicalized by that. I think I just became pissed. Uh, <laughs> but um, Irene, I want to ask you about your blind spots and, and how you've determined what they are, gotten through them. And they're either blind spots with regards to maybe a younger generation than yourself or an older generation and their ideas. I'm basically perfect. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> we I know that part. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've been thinking about this because, um, you know, it's, it's still fairly recent to look back at. I have not tried to read some of the things that I wrote on at Jezebel. You should. Uh, <laughs> it was, um, I guess it was seven or eight years ago now. But um, I think that there were just, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and so I've learned a lot about things like disability, I've learned a lot more about class. Mm. You know, I think, it, to use a very hackneyed phrase, I've definitely checked my privilege in ways that mm. I didn't really even think about before. Right. I mean, I think I was aware that I was, you know, an upper middle class white woman with an elite education, but actually understanding how that functioned in the world and how it made me take things for granted. Like, right. for example, that I think I used to think, when I heard, I remember hearing um, a critique of a certain, uh, feminist author, you know, that, that she should sit down and shut up because we'd heard enough from white women. And I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. Like, no one should ever tell a woman to shut up. And now I actually, having seen more years of uh, how, and not to say that I think women should shut up, but I understand that impulse right. better because yeah. I think now I have seen how, um, you know, uh, as, w as a white woman, I'm, I'm just sort of, I just assume everyone wants to hear what I have to say. And... Mm you just don't think about how you're benefiting from kind of the benefits of the doubt because you're so busy thinking about how women as a class are oppressed. Right. Um, so yeah. I, think I, I think my eyes have been opened to that mm -hmm. in some ways. And, and you know, I have, it's funny because I, I, I have, especially since the election, I have unresolved feelings about the majority of men. I, I think um, mm. on most days I, I follow Justice Ginsburg's vision that, that it's really just these structures that are oppressing us and, and women are no better than men and, and, and men are no better than women and if we had a more just society then people wouldn't behave this way um, and that men genuinely are harmed by gendered oppression too and that they stand to benefit also. And then I have other days where I feel like it's a zero-sum game and we need to strip all men of their power. Uh, yeah. uh, sorry to my fiance <laughs> who's sitting in this room. Um, you have some days where everybody you but you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> she, she has some days where she texts me, you know, something, something, and then 
you know, it, it, the text ends with ban men. <laughs> Which is I, a joke, I think I just I just would have said like, oh, that's so reductive, you know. And now I'm like, no, I'm angry in yeah. a different way than I was before. And I always, you know, it's not that I didn't see, for example, when I was in my early 20s, uh, you know, when I was covering the media business, and I would see these men with wives show up at parties alone to hit on the women who were just kind of starting out. I mean, I, you saw it all the time. It wasn't that I, I was always a feminist, but you see it like longitudinally. Mm -hmm. And that makes you, like, you, you're still thinking at that point that, oh, but, you know, my generation will be the one to change it. Right. And then here you are on the other side of 30 and thinking, like, wow. It's right. And I think that that's the same thing that you're describing. And it's hard to figure out, you know, like, oh, okay, people take advantage when they can, right? And so how do we make it so that they can't? And, and we are seeing since that election, I know what you mean, if it's the misogyny and the racism have a kind of glee to yeah. them be okay, you know, <laughs> we're good. Back. That's right. weird. I, so, Margo, you, you said something about when you were younger, you, you, I think you described yourself as being um, arrogant and, and, and I don't know, did you say that you were self-righteous? I, I don't remember all the, all the adjectives yeah, you were using. Work. I, I'm, not, work. I'm not trying to describe anything to you, but what I wanted, to, it, it, it's, it, it made me think, is there a place to be if that's what being militant is, and I realize that we kind of talked about the idea of mil militancy. If that's what being militant is, is there a way to be militant about one's feminism while also being pragmatic? Because I do mm. think that some of the, and this is not directed at you, because I was not around when you were being arrogant <laughs> when you were younger, but there are people <laughs> who have certain rhetoric um, who are involved in so, so certain social justice movements and who talk about it with a certain authority that I think and an incapacity for, it's not that they can't be nuanced, it's that they don't extend a certain amount of good faith towards people they should be trying to convince, or, or, that, the, or that their self-righteousness actu actually becomes a way of hardening themselves and not a way of welcoming more people in. So the question is, can you be militant while also being prag pragmatic? I can't talk tonight, pragmatic. Well, if pragmatic means strategic, um, sure, absolutely. In a way, uh, I might say that uh, militance is pragmatism mm -hmm. because uh, what I'm sort of meant by it when I was, when we were coming up with the, uh, the using it in the title was the idea that you push the thing as far as you can push it and and you can only, you can't really push it further than you can push it, but you can go right up to the mm -hmm. edge of it and, and realizing that you can't go further than you can go at a given time is a kind of pragmatism, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And you can also have alliances with people who are pushing very vocally between those people and the people who are pushing, um, you know, within, let us say, some institution that requires um, right. quieter methods. Um, right. We know of many alliances that crash <laughs> you know, on those grounds. You turn coat, you know, you, right. you showboat. But it is still possible. Um, I certainly know people who are um, working in, for example, um, abortion, um, who range from all pro-abortion. We're not talking about any of this. Is there room in the Democratic Party for pro-lifers? Yes, no, um, <laughs> there's not. Um, but I know people who are working in various um, 
kinds of um, activism, ranging from just the right out there, you know, demonstrations, protection, you know, for the clinics, et cetera, to people who are consciousness raising among healthcare workers in mm. many states and in many hospitals and having these long conversations wow. where you talk about, you know, healthcare and, and the whole picture of women and of women's health and how abortion fits in. That's strategic. Yeah. Could I do that? Probably not, but I respect it yeah. very much. I think we also just have different roles. I mean, everyone on this stage is a writer, and so we're more comfortable. I mean, everyone has said, you know, I like nuance. And I like nuance is not necessarily, you know, what an organizer needs to say. Right, that's I mean, right. maybe they need to have a nuanced conversation, but they also need to rally their base. And so I think that over and over again, including at the Women's March, I've learned again and again, like I'm a writer, and I have, I'm a citizen too, and I have mm -hmm. beliefs, and I think women are people, and those are controversial things, but, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> but they are, yeah. and and so, but I'm still a writer, and so I want to stand a little bit at the outside and compose my thoughts and ask people questions and observe, mm -hmm. and so it, it's, I think that part of what's happening is in, for example, in internet conversations, people who have completely different disciplinary backgrounds and expectations uh, are yelling at each other, but they actually have completely different like values about what their job is. So some people's job, I mean, even now, like today with the healthcare thing, there's some people's job it is to, to you know, to have a five alarm fire and make people call and so on. And then there's some people who are gonna analyze what it means or, or the images mm -hmm. of, of all of those white men gleefully smiling in front of the White House. I mean, people have different roles in this. And I think there are people who are gonna be strategists and are gonna say like, let's play a long game here. Um, and I, I, I'm a fan of playing a long game. I mean, if we, you know, we quote Justice Ginsburg saying, uh, fight for the things you care about, but do so in a way that will lead others to join you. So I think a lot as a writer, you want others to join you in the argument you're making. Mm. And that, that's something, that's a place where I feel comfortable living. Going back to the, the Women's March and Honor, I think you were, you were talking about the, the organizers um, and the kind of demographic generational makeup of the organizers, but also the organizers were all, for the most part, women of color. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now I'm turning to Margot to ask her as if, if as an African-American feminist, if you've witnessed more inclusion of, of women in color within feminist movements and, and discussions than you were seeing when you were younger. Oh, sure. Um, there's still plenty of dissent. <laughs> now, very. Um, but often from within um, a feminist perspective, which wasn't always mm -hmm. the case. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, it was the 1970s. So <laughs> um, in the late 60s and early 70s, um, feminism was um, not wholly, but to some extent, no, the movement, the groups within the movement racially operated um, pretty separately. You yeah. know, they, they were forming, if there were consciousness raising groups, they were racially separate. Um, you'd had intimate conversations with your feminist friends across racial lines, but all the early organizations I was in, black to, you know, to develop, to start trying to develop a black feminist analysis were all black. Sometimes there were Latina or Asian women, but sometimes they would go off to their own caucuses. So there is absolutely more now. One saw it again with this, we keep 
hailing the March on Washington. Um, but you also have women who are feminists, who were, you know, and LGBTQ activists who were, you know, absolutely essential in the formation of Black Lives Matter. So you are finding, you know, black feminists working throughout, um, throughout the left, and that makes a big difference. But sure. But and also, um, at least in sort of the movements among poets, that was completely that was racially mixed. Yes, at the um, early, yeah, you know, that, that so yeah, it more among writers, but yeah. not completely. Yeah, poets, not completely. I, be I believe you. Yeah. yeah, we tended to live separate lives, even when we sometimes overlapped right. or had you know acute social lives. Right. I I meet among my students. It's a Many more young um, black women who absolutely feminists. Yeah. Um, you, you're saying that there are more black women who identify as feminists yes. now than you used to. Absolutely. Yep. Interesting. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. That's what I'm finding. Moran, mm -hmm. um, I'm now going to you to <laughs> weigh in on I the question, <laughs> which is not really relevant to your experience so much, but. Well, I, I just think as a student of some of this history, it's interesting to see that there always were black women there, but it's just that they weren't always included in the dominant narrative of who was there. So, you know, when we were researching Notorious RBG, um, <coughs> excuse me, Eleanor Holmes Norton was arguing a lot of these cases, these discrimination cases, and Polly Murray was coming up with the theories, and Flo Kennedy was there at the uh, founding. And, yes, and so totally. these women were all, um, present even if they weren't, even if there were also parallel conversations, which by the way doesn't strike me as necessarily a bad thing. I it mean wasn't. there need to be spaces well, for people to talk I about agree. their separate experience. But that the the vision and, and, and I don't think that this is Gloria Steinem's fault because I think you can see her <coughs> excuse me <coughs> again and again pushing back at her being the only person there. Right. But I do think that it was just an easier story to tell uh, and and you also see how the people who have the tools to be in uh, on the talk show or, you know, the people who are sort of have the, the social capital to get themselves in the prominent history are, you know, telegenic white women. And so I, I hope, I think that that is actually changing because I think now it's so much easier to find a diverse range of views, but it's something we should always be aware of. And I, I really am interested in kind of unearthing, you know, th or sort of problematizing or whatever, com making more complex this narrative. Like the second wave was white, white women were feminists and black women did you know, their own thing and they weren't feminists because that no, no, erases we, that's the word. What I, I really yeah, object no, no. to that. We were feminists. We were developing yeah. an analysis of black feminism. We were, those of us who were there were feminists. We were also um, struggling um, among blacks against just the way white women were struggling against misogyny. So were we, but we had that additional twist of, um, okay, here's a black misogynist, but two years ago we were fighting for the same thing, you know, which right. was black power or civil rights or whatever. So, you know, with, with the race problem um, looming over us all, there was a lot of um, complexity and guilt to handle, but that's what yeah, we Yeah, I, I just don't think that that work should be erased when we say like, oh, the second wave was just like white ladies who, you know, wanted to no, earn it's more money. absolutely not the and case. That, no, that is one of the libels, actually. You well, that's true. Okay. And it's convenient for the, for those who rewrite the history to say that, because it continues to divide well, the, us. And it's the unanswerable right. smug critique from, from a liberal white man. Right. If so, so if part of part of the second wave was about rediscovering the 
the history of, of the first one. And, and, right. and um, was there in that rediscovery or that initial discovery an analysis of how women of color had influenced gender politics in the first wave? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, the Grimke, the, the Grimke sisters. Yeah, and some of it was um, archival, you know, these yeah. anthologies of so writings of, <laughs> of black women. Right. Gerda Lerner did one. Um, uh, Tony uh, Cape. Oh, what was her name? Um, the woman who kept, who started doing the first work on the black women's club movement. Mm -hmm. You know that was that was happening, and that was if that was leading fairly soon into you know this wave of black feminist scholarship. Yeah. Do you think that was wide was that widespread among feminists of your generation? Like, were, or was that just you <laughs> who was who was who was who was being open to discovering or rediscovering the 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 contributions of women of color from decades? It was prior. widespread. Mm -hmm. I I think. I mean. Uh, I mean, Gerda Lerner's a white woman rediscovering yeah, women yeah. of and color. It was the and um, that yeah, and but a lot of black women were doing those anthologies yes, too. Yes, but I mean, yeah. yes, absolutely. But they were part of. They were showing up in the feminist bookstores. I mean, they were part of the reading. Um, yes, a absolutely. And I'm I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, the the Harriet Jacobs, the slave narratives. Uh, yes, the, but the, oh, there was the, well, that was a little later, the um, Schomburg collection of black women writers, yeah. but excerpts from a lot of those narratives or little cheap editions. <laughs> so many of the first, you know, books by white and black women that were being reissued in the 70s were in the cheapest editions the publishers could possibly come up with. Right. But a lot of those books were, were coming out then. Yeah. Um, so we are running out of time because we have, well, we have to open up the, we want to open to, it up. To, to question. So um, I, I was going to ask you for, I was going to ask one last question, but I realized I don't want to talk about Donald Trump, or rather I'll let someone else ask you about him. Um, so we will open it up to questions. I can't see the audience. Well, I can see most of them. So if you have a question, we raise your hand, up. and we'll, um, there's one right here in the front of the. Terrific. Um, one thing I've noticed talking to younger women is that they have no idea for the most part, what life was like before, say, before the, mid, the early to mid 60s. Yes. And when I tell them normal things that happened, you know, that you couldn't wear pants to lectures in college, no. you had to get dressed for dinner in your dorm, things like that. I mean, very, you know, the, the, the uh, in loco parentis concept where girls were regimented and controlled. You couldn't, you, could, you had to come in to your dorm by a certain time. And the dorms were, of course, not unisex. And it's like um, amazing to them. And I thought, that is something that is really important for young women to understand because they take for granted so many of the things that changed you know, between the mid-60s and the mid-70s, I have recently been speaking to a woman, I guess she's about 30, she's an academic, and I told her some of these things and her jaw dropped. And now she tells me that she's in a study group that's reading second wave feminist work. <laughs> because, and she's, you know, she's an educated young woman, she teaches at Vassar, but she wow. had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, you know, 
somebody should write a history of... <laughs> well, you're kind of doing that, yeah. Collecting yes. the documents yeah. into one book. Well, yeah. the documents, but like a, a sort of a sociological description of what it was like. Gail Collins has a great book like that. Oh, that's yes. right. Yeah, she does. Um, anyone else? Um, over here in the front row. I should say, yeah, w uh, make, make sure you also ask a question of, of, the, of the panelists so they can respond. Um, okay. So a, an activist whose name has gone out of my mind right now said, once said, the challenge um, like of, I guess, people who want to change the world is to teach um, thinkers to become fighters and fighters to become thinkers. And so you are all right. How do you work at transforming yourself like between a thinker and a fighter? Hmm. Well, I remember uh, cutting back on my activism and increasing my writing, and I had to promise a room of women that I actually would write they said, we're going to come back for you if you don't actually write. And um, so the idea was to actually produce the writing and actually embody the consciousness in, in, in the work. Um, I mean, it's very hard to, you know, I teach and I write and, you know, I, I can't be a, a full-time activist. But I'm a fighter in, in the work that I do. Margo, can we get, can we get your... Okay. Most of us um, struggle in exactly that way. Yeah. You, know, you said, how do we work to transform? Maybe it's work to um, be resourceful and strong enough to go back and forth, to mm -hmm. keep the writing life, and to know when, in fact, um, again, I teach in a writing program. I see graduate students and get talking about this all the time. Wait, look at the world now. I'm going to have to give more to politics than I expected. Mm -hmm. um, but no, don't give up your writing. You, you, ne you negotiate. Everybody in life does that. Yeah. And you question yourself all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think you wouldn't want to be a fighter without doing some thinking. <laughs> so you, you got to keep that going. Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, it, it also just seems like they're sort of inextricably linked in the sense of if, if you're passionate about a subject, and you're passionate about what's being left out of the dominant stories that we've been told. Um, and among those are the stories of women and how gender shapes people's lives in general. Um, that then it's a fight just to be able to tell those stories. And I think um, I, I talked a little bit about how we, we bring different styles and we bring different uh, contributions to these values, to the kind of more just world that we would like to see. And so I, I think for me, it has to do with being a reporter and, and fighting to get the stories out there. And a polemic is occasionally needed, but most of the time telling a story that is deeply compelling to people, that makes people understand, that has an argument perhaps, um, but is based in observed realities and facts um, and stories of people. I think is a form of fighting. I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. basically putting up your best shot at convincing mm -hmm. somebody uh, that, that, that this is what's happening and perhaps that this is how things should be. Mm -hmm. Anna. Uh, 
Oh, I didn't realize the qu- I was going to answer the question as well. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how to answer it because I don't because I don't yeah I, I don't think of them as being separate things. Although I think that having the ab- the freedom to think and to interrogate oneself and one's own ideas and those of others is a is a luxury as well as being a form of fighting itself. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that makes total sense, but it's it's um or maybe I mean it the other way around. Um, um, I'll turn da- turn around in my own head. But I but but but, but I do think that thinking is a form of fighting because I think without the the ability to 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 think and, and again to have the luxury and the space to do so because a lot of people don't right. um, because they're trying to attend to more urgent needs in in, in any given moment. Uh, that that is a fight. It's a fight to uh, you know expand your understanding of the world. It. Um, I'm just going to leave it there. I just th- I think that thinking I- thinking is fighting. Uh, anyone else? Um, there's one coming in the back. Hi. Um, considering the political climate that we're in right now, what are some of the fundamental things that women can do to start to own their own power and build self-confidence so that we do not continuously fall back on having to complain about the way men are being. Well, I think it's just, uh, I teach writing and I teach writing to younger women and I I always am dealing with the issue of confidence. I mean, I deal with it in myself, and I I share it. I, I mean, I share my own struggles with younger women so that they don't feel weird for feeling uh, unself-confident or less than. And it's it's a continual. It's a it's a sort of repro. I like the kind of computer language, it's it's a kind of reprogramming, you know, it's a kind of continual reprogramming. Um, You know, I'll say, you know, the energy that your lack of self-confidence takes is really the same amount of energy. Just think, flip it to confidence and just think where, you know, where you can get with your revision of this essay or um, your articulation of these so I try to be very, you know, pragmatic with at least with my students and with my friends about. Women can spend time talking um, honestly um, and avidly um, with other women, getting information, um, political information, factual information, but even uh, but consciousness raising, you know, yeah. exchanging um, real, real thoughts and feelings about. Um, is going on <laughs> you know, right. in my in my and in our lives as a woman um, our lives as women what is holding me back what's holding you back um, yeah consciousness raising and use constant use of the brain 
you're, you're too Grace Atkinson quote about the minimum being friendship. <laughs> I mean, I actually think that, that you know, people have inborn networks of, of friends and families uh, that are untapped resources for those kinds of conversations too. And if anything, this election that we just had is a kind of jolt to anybody who might have been complacent or might have felt like there wasn't a reason for them to use their power. So it's at least, a, you know, not a silver lining, but it's at least a teaching moment. It's an interval where a lot of people are being woken up. And I think to, to be able to marshal that energy into something more sustainable is the number one question of our moment. Um, to, you know, to go back to the, to the comment that was made earlier, I think we all need to learn more history in general, not just women's history, but especially women's history and other histories of marginalized people. Um, because then we understand that, that you know, these are not, it's not just us. These are not just things that we're going through. Um, and you can do that horizontally in terms of the people who are in your life. And then you can also do it by reading or watching or just uh, learning more history. Because um, we keep having to reinvent the wheel. I mean, that's kind of the thing with these waves, right? I mean, everyone has to come to it on their own and at the right stage of their life and their right place. But it's actually kind of sad that there's so much institutional knowledge being lost and it's so amazing that, that you guys are doing the work to, to counteract that. But I think it's also very empowering to realize that, that it's not just that you are not alone in, in feeling this way and seeing the world this way and people here, but that it's been going on for a very long time. And I've been thinking a lot about this, this sort of violent backlashes that happened in the past too. For example, the death of the ERA mm -hmm. and the Reagan revolution and how people thought that that was the end of feminism and now you know people also thought that Hillary Clinton was going to become president and now maybe we'll never see a female president well you know never say never we have no idea what the future can bring but I take a lot of solace in trying to kind of understand how other people have puzzled through this and it makes me feel like okay um, I don't know if the arc of history is long but but you just have to work really hard and trying to make I, I mean I know it's long but I don't know where it's going um, but we have some say in that you know, and, and we can't just let history happen to us. We have to be actively trying to shape it towards a, a better, more just world. Um, with regards to confidence, and I think one of the part of the question was about uh, complaining about men. I reserve the right to complain about men and try and <laughs> boost my own confidence at the same time. <laughs> Sometimes one, one goes into the other. But um, it's funny because I've noticed that since the election, a couple of things. I don't know that I've become more confident because I'm totally horrified. But I think that the election of such a mediocre white dude to the highest office in the land made me realize how many other mediocre <laughs> dudes yeah. are in positions of power around me and, and, and in the world. And, and just how, and, and compared to them, just how much talent there is out there that may not be recognized, but that. I'm trying to find a silver lining here, but I, I but, but 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 I do feel that that. Th and you're watching everybody lower the bar for him still. What? You're watching everybody lower the bar for him still. I mean, everybody knows that he's mediocre, but they're yeah. like, look, he said a sentence. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I've noticed is since the, since the election is that I have been, I don't think consciously, but maybe I have been making more of an effort to tell the women that I who are around me, whether I'm close to them, whether they're women I work with when I think that 
just that they're great. You know, yeah. I, I I don't walk up to someone and say you're great and walk away. Although I should do that because that would be a really nice thing to do. But just to like to to, to affirm them when when they're feeling low or when they've done something that I think is 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 worth noting. And I try and do that in front of other people. Yeah. Um, and I know how that feels to be on the receiving end of that, which is you know sometimes you shrink back in yourself or you feel embarrassed or you say oh no 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 no. But but I've 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 noticed that I've been doing that more often. I think that. Mm. Um, there was a, co a collective feeling or a collective blow that was dealt to a lot of women in this country and outside of this country uh, after the election um, and that maybe I'm trying to make up for it in some small way by, by being more demonstrative about my mm -hmm. um, love for and respect for and um, gratitude for the women around me. And bravery is contagious, I think, mm -hmm. also. Bravery is contagious. I mean, I yes. think, like, if you, I, 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 I think I felt very, after the election, like, maybe I'll take a break from saying things, or I feel so depressed, or I don't know if this is, what's the point of anything. But other people using their voices, I think, made me realize, no, there's still an urgency for this more than ever. And I think that, you know, leading by example of building your own power is going to inspire the people around you. Yeah. And there's one... I think I remember in the 19 that the revolutions in 1989 and reading about how one person saying one thing had to have started the whole thing and th the woman who got the idea for the pink hats and then you look at the newspapers the uh, pictures of that day and they're all pink and I thought, wow, that was one woman who started that. And it's a kind of visual, you know, uh, uh, you know, a visualization of what one person just deciding to say one thing, mm -hmm. how it or can. How, how an idea can go, yes. can become contagious or go viral. Yeah. With, you know what's funny with those hats when, uh, before the march, I was kind of oh, cutesy pink hats, and 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 even went well, like yeah, I I was a little kind of like iffy about them, yeah. but then seeing them in mass um, oh was yeah. incredibly powerful. And 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 the other thing someone pointed out to me is that <laughs> um, you could <laughs> you like you like it 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 marked a particular day in history. Um, yeah. Like you we, like we've all seen crowd shots, but we're never gonna maybe see crowd shots like that where there's a s there's also a a big smattering or a sea of pink in the same way. Right. There was something that, that, for lack of, I don't want to sound cynical, that branded, yeah. those hats branded that day. And I, and I ended up the day wishing that I could find one on the ground that had been discarded by someone <laughs> from the march <laughs> because I wanted one for myself. Um, and, uh, but alas, they, no, one, no one dropped a hat. Um, are we, <laughs> uh, do we have time for one more? Okay, is there anyone else in the audience? sort of a historical question uh, and something that I'm not quite clear about about your history. Uh, and um, I might be wrong about this, but um, my understanding was that there had there was sort of ambivalence among feminists about issues like the 1971 Child Care Act, welfare reform, minimum wage issues, and so on. And you get a kind of a those kinds of issues in the 
concerted way. Um, and I was wondering if that's true, and if so, why do you think it is? It, are you talking about the women? Uh, the, there, there was a whole kind of zone of women from the left who were against the Equal Rights Amendment. Is that the? No, not the Equal Rights Amendment, and not. I'm not talking about issues to do with. Um, but, but legislation around, do you remember the 1971 Child Care Act, for example? Mm. Nobody even knows about it. Aha, okay. I will quickly educate you. Um, it was uh, a bill which was going to, you know about Head Start, right? Yes. It was going to extend kind of, be a national date, a sort of daycare center, so mm -hmm. that um, children, even smaller than Head Start, would have some sort of access to care, even the poorest women Childcare, for example, as you know now, is one of the most ex uh, expensive things and a, a huge uh, poverty uh, incentive to have that act We can't hear. Sorry. This and is the bill that was vetoed by Nixon, right? So yes, it was vetoed by Nixon, and it was, uh, oh, which he, uh, even though it had been passed by both houses of Congress, and um, feminists were sort of ambivalent about it. They did not rally behind it. And the fact that none of you guys knows about it that much kind of almost reinforces that mm. uh, impression that I have. And I kind of wonder why not and why there wasn't more of a kind of feminist reaction also to welfare reform, which also eventually ran out of money. Well, so there. Or was there? Maybe. Uh, there th I think there was to welfare reform, but it may not have been. Widely reported, and Margot, 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 you're, you're, you're it, it may also. It probably was that you had more progressive um, leftist feminists working um, on these issues, and um, more mainstream um, ones paying less attention. There were certainly, you know. Um, those kinds of debates going on, even with organizations like Wages for Housewives. I, I am familiar with that bill, and I think everyone here knows about it, but I, it, as far as I can tell, the biggest uh, opponent to it was the quote-unquote, you know, the early seeds of the quote-unquote pro-family movement. Um, oh. But it would, you know, because Nixon at first was in favor of it, and then he vetoed it because he said that it was, you know, going to inappropriately displace family relations. Um, yeah. So, but I, I think that it would be interesting to, to plumb the historical record on that. Um, the welfare reform thing, I know for sure that feminists like Katha Pollitt organized against it or wrote right. against it, um, but it was also the 90s were a strange time. Yeah. You know, because people, people had, I think, overlearned the lessons of the backlash. And so they were making compromises that they now should know that they shouldn't, shouldn't have. have made, yeah. Right. But they had been in the wilderness. Right. All right. Um, well, I think we're worth more examination. Yeah. Well, yes, I definitely. As, as you said, we can, we can go to Google later. At least I will um, and read up on that. But thank you for the question. Yeah. Um, and thanks to everyone here for talking and sharing your wisdom. And thanks to the audience for being here. Um, I wish we could go on longer. Thanks, guys. <laughs>